I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the LRB podcast. I'm James Butler, a contributing editor at the LRB, standing in this week for Tom. My guest today is Jeff Mann, who teaches at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, and has written a piece in the latest issue about the way some mainstream economists think about climate change and the power their models have to shape politicians' choices. It's a review of a new book by William Nordhaus called The Spirit of Green, The Economics of Collisions and Contagions in a Crowded World. Jeff, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I think probably the best place for us to start is just with um, Nordhaus himself. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about why he's a significant figure and perhaps, given his influence, what it is about his method that's so controversial. Sure. So William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2019, which gives you a little bit of a sense of how prominent he is in the profession as a whole, is, I think it's fair to say, by far and away the most prominent climate economist. And there's very good reason for that. He he basically took on the problem as early as some would say the 1970s, and definitely since the 1980s, he's been working on this problem that, you know, at that point, a lot of people, both inside and outside of economics, would have told him, you know, it was not as big a deal as he was saying it was. Um, But he very early on saw the economic risks associated with global warming. And over the years, especially over the last, say, 25 years, he has been working often with a, a large team, and he's always very careful to credit the whole team to develop a model that will allow us to understand the economic impacts on the global economy, mostly. There's also regional variations. But the costs associated uh, with climate change and the effect on long-run growth. And that model, it's DICE, the Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy Model, and the regional one is RICE, as you can imagine. And that model is a very large and complex set of equations that tries to take account of the effects of largely temperature change you know, on long-run growth. You you mentioned in the piece that or, or the piece takes um, some of this to task. What is it about this method that's that's so controversial um, or so, uh, you know, questionable for you? Well, I'm certainly not the first to raise some concerns about the model. The point that comes up a lot in the piece that I wrote around discounting, uh, which actually isn't a huge part of the book, um, has long been a focus of critics of Nordhaus. But the problems with the method are in some ways multiple, and in other ways I think Nordhaus would in some ways fairly justify the model in the face of the criticism by saying that the criticisms ask more of the model than the model attempts to do, which is certainly true. But effectively, what the model does is it attaches a very simple model of climate change, like climate science model, and for the most part takes the output of that model, which is usually uh, for the purposes of these kinds of models, just as I said, the temperature change, and plugs that in via a sort of baseline part of the model to figure out the costs associated, as I mentioned, with climate change for the larger global economy. 
And as you can imagine, the reductivisms that have to happen along the way, in particular for reducing the problem of climate change really to one of just rising temperature, which is actually a relationship that we don't fully understand to begin with, the, the effect of emissions on actual global temperature change. But even if we take that sort of range of probabilities as accurate and plug them into a larger understanding of the economy, then we can end up with a very, very, very simplified, and in fact, some might even say arrogant set of assumptions about what the economy will look like. Inside that model, of course, there have to be a great deal of simplifications as well. And one of the main features of those models that can really shape its outcome, and this is the part that has come under significant criticism, is the so-called discount rate that is plugged into the model to take account of the changing nature of costs across time. The assumption being that costs closer to us have a greater weight in our decision making. And so we discount the future at this or that rate to tell us how we might prioritize interventions in the climate system over time. Nordhaus's discount rate is quite a bit higher, which means the future is less valuable uh, than many, many people would feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, and that has attracted a great deal of, of criticism. And so the model itself has technical features that I think everyone admires in terms of its original contribution to this kind of research. But it has become the benchmark model, and it shapes how modeling is done in a very significant way, such that not everyone is using dice and rice, but the people who don't use it have to spend a lot of time <laughs> defending themselves for not doing so. Most famously, Nicholas Stern's work in the, in the Stern Report of 2006, which you know, uses a different model, but has to spend a lot of time defending itself. I want to come on to, to discounting in a bit because... You know, I think it's useful for us to kind of work back from the influences or, or the, the kind of influence that this, that this stuff has on public policy to you know, rewind back into, into how it works. You mentioned the piece that Nordhaus treats climate change basically as a negative externality, effectively kind of unintended consequence of economic activity. And so he says, well, the solution then is to price those consequences in to your economic activity itself. Um, and so that ends up as a kind of carbon tax of some kind. You know, you basically put a price on using carbon and that will encourage, you know, the, the system to reform itself around um, the, those, those, the, those consequences um, which are now internal to the system. And so that sounds sort of both deceptively simple and you know, really quite attractive. Um, so can you see, can you see the attraction of, you know, and this is now hugely influential as a, a way of kind of approaching the question. So can you see why that framing might be attractive? And, and maybe what is missing there? So what feeds through uh, and what, what starts to, to disappear in that kind of headline figure of, you know, uh, you mentioned that the number that they put on it is $45, which sounds worryingly low for a ton of carbon. Right. The attractions of this uh, approach to, you know, understanding the problem and, and perhaps even outlining what we should do in the face of it, climate change being the problem in this case, um, are, uh, I think, very understandable for several reasons. But one of the most important, and I think this comes up when in discussions of larger kinds of political change uh, more broadly, but certainly climate change poses us in a more immediate way, is the fact that it kind of tells us that we can keep doing everything else the same way we've been doing it. We just need to adjust the, you know, the price levels or the relative costs of certain behaviors. But it actually doesn't address 
I think Nordhaus would be the first to admit it doesn't address these problems. But the question is, can we not address them? That's the, that's the big question. Can we move forward without addressing the questions of uh, institutional and political change, uh, the massive amounts of actual material transformation we have to create very, very quickly, um, which Nicholas Stern has actually been talking about lately. He, too, is very critical of the standard use of IAMs, integrated assessment models, I should say, which is the broader collective term for, for these models. But the attractions are significant because this is really, we can tweak this, we can tweak the existing system you know, there's a great deal of resistance, but we have the mechanisms already in place for taxes like this, for calculations like this, for the institutionalization of this way of understanding the world. I, I am entirely sympathetic to the desire to find a simple solution to this problem. But the biggest problem, and I'm stating the obvious, is that this encourages us to, to think there is a simple solution, and there is not. And the significance of that willful ignorance is exploding as the moments tick by. And to the extent that these models can convince us, again, that we don't need to look very far, we, you know, arguably walk further and further toward the edge of the abyss. And that is a very, very troubling dynamic that, whether intended or not, has become, I would argue, the most significant implication of Nordhaus's work. I mean, one of the one of the things you mentioned in the piece is that, that there are other things that that Nordhaus seems to want us to accept. And one of those things is that uh, 3.5 degrees of warming, I can't remember whether it's he regards it as the most likely outcome or that it's the optimal outcome. It's the optimal outcome, according to a paper from, if I remember correctly, 2017. So he may have changed his, his numbers, but uh, every number in that is drawn from his contributions to the economic literature, every number in the article. Um, and I think he means it as the optimal, at least at that point, given existing cost structures and expectations of economic growth. And again, I should preface this um, by saying that when economists say the optimal, they mean from a very particular perspective. Um, it, that's an efficiency measure uh, in terms of costs. And so when he says 3.5, he's not saying, I want 3.5. What he is saying is that given the trajectory of the economy as he understands it, and several other people understand it as well. And given the benefits of the growth that will accrue if we don't intervene too much, then 3.5 is the optimal outcome in terms of balancing the benefits of growth with the costs associated with a warming earth. But doesn't that lead us to, to kind of two interrelated questions, one of which is, you know, what gets counted in that calculation of the optimum? You know, what gets valued, essentially? And then the, the way in which these models rely on effectively, um, and this is something you mentioned in the article, a kind of gradual progression of uh, warming, whereas the science now, it certainly seems to look a bit more like there are these kind of inflection points, these tipping points, are, you know, which can change very rapidly the dynamic you know, with which climate change proceeds. Um, so I, I wonder, do you have a sense that Nordhaus has either of these two factors? So either the question of, you know, what gets valued or not, because in a way, it's kind of, that's his argument, right? That there are things that are not priced in, um, that need to be priced in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this question of whether there are, you know, whether he's, uh, you know, taken account of, of the way in which the science has changed or, or, or is, is emphasizing different things rather than this kind of gradual progression. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that, in terms of dealing with the problem of thresholds and tipping points and these kinds of things, 
Those are not directly built into DICE as originally formulated, but certainly many, many other climate economists have taken these tools and, and tweaked them to take a, try to take account of these dynamics. So uh, while, as far as I'm aware, Nordos himself hasn't directly worked on that kind of tinkering with the model, and that may be wrong, certainly many, many others have attempted to take that into account. So there is arguably a dynamic capacity within the model to take account of those effects. The question, of course, is how well they do that. And, and many times it's just by inserting an equation with a so-called dummy variable, which allows uh, the equation to kind of turn on when the tipping point happens. So we won't have the effects of no, you know, Gulf Stream. But then when the Gulf Stream stops, we flick the dummy variable equation and all of a sudden we understand the climate is without, without a Gulf Stream. And that you know, again, is perhaps some would say a necessary simplification of the global climate system. Um, to me, that seems like a gross oversimplification and also a kind of palliative uh, for the system itself as a, at the time. But I do think that the question of the reliability of these models is one that is not asked very often, partly because they, for the most part, and especially I would argue for policymakers and the public, they they are they function as effectively technical black boxes, and so they what that does is it closes conversation down precisely where it needs to happen. The urgency of the problem is increasingly obvious to the public, but the policy institutional and organizational mechanisms with which we might respond to it are clearly not connected to that sense of urgency, except for the fact that we might you know gather once a year and wring our hands, and then perhaps even shed a tear at the end of the meeting. I mean, the, it, it's worth saying like the, the sort of significant policy outcome of this stuff are these kind of carbon taxes. And so you mentioned that the, the proposed price for Nordhaus, I think, is, is $45. Um, but there was a, the interagency group uh, under Cass Sunstein and Michael Greenstone under Obama, disbanded, of course, under the Trump administration, plumped for something even lower, uh, I think $36 per tonne. And then there's also, you know, I went I went searching around because it struck me that this was a very low figure. I went searching around for the kind of IPCC paper on this and I found something from you know, October 2018, which is the time at which Nordhaus was getting his Nobel. <laughs> and the IPCC uh, released a report saying, for 1.5 degrees to remain possible, then by 2030, the pricing would need to be somewhere between $135 and sort of $6,000 a tonne. Um, which uh, is certainly rather different to, to what Nordhaus is proposing. So, you know, the politics of these kind of carbon taxes, you know, is unarticulated. I mean, you know, you get this, you know, oh, we'll put a carbon tax on it and, you know, that, that'll help us. But actually, the question remains kind of unanswered unless you're really contemplating doing something, you know, fairly punitive by the IPCC's measure. It doesn't seem necessarily that it's going to work. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, I mean, that's an excellent question that we should be asking. And, and agreed, I have a friend here in, in Vancouver um, named Mark Lee, who is a senior economist with a, a think tank here in town. And he has worked on these problems for years and years and years. And his estimation, and it's you know just an estimation, is that nothing below $200 US will have an effective behavioral impact. Here in Canada, we nominally have a carbon tax, which has caused outrage amongst Several of the people parked in Ottawa right now, actually. Um, but uh, it's nowhere near $200. I mean, it's not even in it. It's at a level that is 
sort of a distraction, a little bit of a, you know, an irritation like a small fly or something in the, in the pricing structure. The way that Nordhaus calculates $45, which was actually, I should be clear, was is just a, an updated variation on a paper that he published in 2019. And so I just recalculated the value for, for the present day. But regardless, that's clearly in the range that he's proposing. And he does mention that it should ratchet up over time. So that's presently what it should be. But he imagines, say, in 2050, that it would be considerably higher. So it is worth mentioning that. But the bigger question you're asking, which is, is individual consumption and production decisions the, the place where we need to intervene? I mean, I would say we're crazy if we think that is the mechanism that's going to save us or turn us back from the edge, if there's an edge out there. But that type of response fits perfectly well with virtually everything else that we do to, to regulate. And as I said earlier, again, stating the obvious, th this is the search for a very simple, appealing, and uh, palatable solution to a problem that doesn't present itself that way. Right. I mean, one of the things that's striking, you know, and we've touched on it already, but the Nordhaus's work is obviously it's about the future, but it's, you know, it's a very familiar version of the future in which kind of all the contours of our current institutions remain kind of more or less the same and particular features of our current setup, you know, especially economic growth remain, you know, basically inviolable constants. And so obviously one of the things that you're suggesting in this piece is that this entails quite a lot of assumptions about the way in which things are going to pan out <laughs> over the coming decades. But I wonder, you know, it, is it even possible to, to undertake this kind of modelling you know, this kind of thinking, this kind of approach to climate change, you know, while building in the possibility of kind of quite significant political change um, in institutions. So one of the things you suggest is that one of the tacit assumptions in, in lots of these models is that, you know, distribution of income is going to remain effectively the same, for instance. And so it seems obvious to me that models are useful in some way, right? But my question is, you know, are they adequate to the way in which the world is likely to change over the coming two, three decades? If I'm honest, I, I waver a tiny bit on, on these questions, you know, the relevance of models and whether or not this is the approach we need to take, whether or not it can be paired with, you know, a more radical institutional thinking. I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a clear answer to myself on those questions. I do think that it's not always if I'm honest, it's not always obvious to me that the modeling has a role. And in fact, I'm certainly not the first person to say that. As you can imagine, even some climate economists like Robert Pindick at Harvard has you know, written very powerfully that uh, I am so misstate or have the capacity to so misstate the current situation that we should really just be asking climate scientists for their opinion to go with expert opinion. And he really has made very powerful arguments in some ways against this kind of modeling precisely for the reasons that we were discussing earlier. So I'm not always sure. I'm sure there's people who will hear me say that and think, what the heck is he thinking? Of course we have to model. It's the only way we can anticipate the future. I'm not so sure that's true. And in fact, if the modeling again becomes this a way to sugarcoat the future, then it actually does a lot of harm. I mean, I know that you and I have had the chance to talk in the past about some other work that, that I've done around institutional and political change associated with climate change. And I think we see that happening already 
But these models have no capacity to take account not only of the positive things we must achieve, massive transformations of our energy system, the way we use land, uh, not just our tax system, but the whole sort of distributional mechanisms we use to run the modern state. All of these things have to reshape themselves. And I would argue that they will reshape themselves, whether we like it or not. And if we pretend that it's business as usual the whole way along, but just with a changing tax structure for emissions, then we are going to find ourselves in uh, effectively, you know, a series of political economic potential nightmares because the political power associated with managing this kind of transformation can take a lot of different forms. And many of them are not very attractive in terms of authoritarianism, uh, fascism, a variety of kind of anarchic migration scenes that you can imagine. These are, none of this can be taken account of, you know, just by a slow ratcheting up of carbon taxes over the next 90 years. Right. And one of the things that becomes, you know, clear, you you mentioned sort of Nordhaus thinks, well, you know, the carbon intensity of each, you know, of output is decreasing. So maybe, you know, everything else can remain the same while we gradually ratchet down a sort of, uh, you know, carbon intensity, which seems to me to be um, Pollyanna-ish at best. Uh. Yeah, I, I, I have nothing to add to that. I do think that, I think it's important to mention that it's not just Nordhaus and what we might think of as the sort of most orthodox realm of climate economics that operates this way. You know, economic growth models for the long run that don't take account of climate change have long acted exactly the same, as if we will just have a world that's exactly the same in 90 years, except it will be better because it will be technologically improved. It will be wealthier. And the assumption of the distributional mechanisms in the modern economic model suggests that, you know, we will all benefit from that. It won't, it might be a lopsided distribution, but it will literally trickle down. That's the assumption. It also assumes mostly that over the long run, there'll be a convergence of different parts of the world in terms of their wealth. Um, So the development is kind of built into the model, but it's built in not by mechanisms that make it happen. It's built in by assuming it will happen. So that in 2100, the image is of a world that is technologically a masterpiece compared to today. It's also way wealthier. It's therefore more committed to dealing with climate change. So at that point, perhaps if the problem is very big, we will just suck all the carbon out of the air or readjust our living mechanisms or search for another planet. But we don't need to do it yet. That's the message. And I feel like that is literally walking forward with our hands tied behind our back. This is the LRB podcast. I'm sorry to disturb the dulcet tones of received pronunciation, but if you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, there's a good chance you'll enjoy the Harper's podcast. Hi, I'm Violet Luca, the web editor at Harper's Magazine. Every Monday, I speak with writers such as Lauren Euler, Adolf Reed Jr., Will Self, Vivian Gornick, Elisa Gabbert, Hari Kunzru, and Garth Greenwell about pieces they recently contributed to Harper's, as well as the issues of the day. You can find an archive of all of our episodes and subscribe on any platform you'd like by visiting harpers.org slash podcast. We should come on and talk about discounting, actually, because I think I think it ties nicely into that question about the future and the way in which we think about the future. And it seems to me that discounting in public policy is all to do with decisions about the future. And it's something that might seem, I guess, a, a bit alien to a non-specialist, um, but I think it's very sort of well spelled out in the piece. As I understand it, discounting is a macroeconomic form of the kind of decisions that we all make, money now or later, well-being now or later. 
And you point out that there are, or maybe ought to be, ethical and political and normative elements in this calculation, which are sometimes elided. So first of all, have, have I got discounting right? Um, and, and tell us a bit about um, maybe why it matters uh, in this context. Yes, you have, you've got it right. I mean, it, the intuition, once I think we take the time to think about it, is very straightforward. We all do the kinds of decision making that you described. You know, we might prefer to accept a bit of money now that is perhaps a little bit less than if waiting for more later because we have needs right now that we need to address or a whole bunch of other factors that might, you know, shape our decision. And so discounting is effectively the modeling communities or the economists more generally way of thinking about the fact that our relative assessment of costs now and costs in the future is going to be different. And effectively, we're most likely to prioritize our decisions now or the effects on us now. And so if we think about, say, massive investments in infrastructure to deal with adapting to climate change, there's a big question that arises at a sort of social or societal level. Is it worth it for us to spend hundreds of millions or even trillions of dollars to deal with a problem that as yet would not seem to merit that kind of response? To understand or to assess the relative costs across time of that decision, economists use something that they call the discount rate, which we've been talking about a whole lot. And that is really just uh, an assemblage of factors to produce one number that will allow us to think about how much we discount, in other words, value less than our own time, how much we discount costs in the future. And if you don't care at all about the future, then you'll behave exactly as would benefit you now. If you care a little bit about the future, you'll change your th decision-making a tiny bit, these kinds of things. Um, and so Nordhaus's uh, discount rate is higher. In other words, he devalues the future more than some others. And he does so because he says that the market actually gives us a number. We don't have to do complicated math to discover the, the, market, the discount rate because the market tells us it. If the market return on a 20-year bond is 4%, then that's telling us exactly how people are assessing the future, that they need a 4% annual return to spend money now to deal with problems in the future, in 20 years in the future. And so if you set the discount rate inside your model as lower than that, in other words, valuing the future more, then you're actually inaccurately representing society's priorities. So he says, the only revealed rate, we can make up all these other ones out of our ethics, he says, and that's fine. But the revealed rate is the one revealed in the real rate of return on capital in the market. And right now, say it's about 4.5%. And 4.5% versus 1% in different discounting rates in different models means literally the difference between valuing someone 50 years down the line, the welfare of someone 50 years down the line at, you know, somewhere between, say, half of ours to something like one-eighth of ours. Like, in other words, my grandchildren's welfare is valued in that model at one-eighth my own welfare. And when we say it out loud, that's kind of freaky. And in fact, as you, I know you know, but others may not, um, Frank Ramsey, the economist of 100 years ago who sort of is understood to have really established the pattern on how to think about this stuff, he said in a, the most famous paper that, you know, laid this out that... Uh, if you set your discount rate at anything other than zero, it's a failure of the imagination and of morality. We, sh we should be generationally equivalent across time. And that does make sense. But then if you look at the world, 
Nordhaus is describing something much closer to reality than Ramsey is. Right. And I mean, I think that's that's one of the the defenses Nordhaus has, right, as, as you outline it. He's, you know, the question of whether these market signals can be taken as descriptors of general kind of human consensus. It seems to me that the, the market is distorted in all sorts of ways. You know, whether the market itself should be taken as a signal of kind of, you know, human consensus, I, I think is questionable itself. But even if you were to do so, like you would have to look at an you know, enormous number um, of, of impacts on that, to you know, which looks to me fairly questionable if you're going to take the number at the end as a as a clear signal of what people um, truly value. Nonetheless, you know, it, it seems to me that he has, you know, a, an uncomfortable political point for people like you and me, which is that if you were to try to make something like a carbon tax work within the structure of the global economy as it exists today, it would need to compete in some way with the rate of return on capital, right? And so, you know, it's it's, it's almost as if it, it leads us to these conclusions, which are that, you know, that, that, that maybe that is going to be insufficient. You know, is his defense really just simply... This is, and I know that he said this kind of quite explicitly in various at various points. This is the only realistic, the only kind of practical way available to us to deal with kind of the carbon system, right? Is this, you know, the the the, the model that he he puts out and and the kind of policy proposals that arises from it? Does he consider anything else? You know, does he consider critiques of 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 that position? He probably does. I, I'm not aware of of places that that's become you know, an important part of discussions or papers or books that he's written, but I could be wrong about that, certainly. He would also, I'm sure, agree that regulation more broadly is an essential part of this transition um, that doesn't necessarily involve taxation. It could be, you know, banning certain kinds of behaviors or subsidizing certain technologies that might help us in the future. I'm sure he, he imagines a whole suite of what I would describe as quite mainstream policy responses um, to the problem. But it is nonetheless the case that the the kind of jewel in the crown of this framework is a carbon tax that forces people to so-called internalize the externality, which is the production of you know greenhouse gas emissions that if we can cost properly according to this logic, we can kind of force people to pay for them before they've even emitted them. I do think that that is ultimately the proposition in the book that this is really the only realistic way we're going to address this problem. And even if one thinks that's true, which many, many people do, we can still very much debate the way the model is structured, its discount rates, its capacity to take into account the kinds of material change that needs to happen. Um, I know that Nicholas Stern has recently been working very hard you know, this is a person who's used IAMs a lot over the years, and he, and I know that right now he is working very hard on trying to think about what he calls the sort of deep uncertainty associated with any of these models, even if we imagine they are the solution. Some of the key parameters, the functional form of the equations, even the variables themselves are subject to such extraordinary uncertainty that the results could be seen as a best guess, or they could be seen as total and complete madness based on things pulled out of thin air, literally thin air. And to put our faith in that as the, the policy mechanism is very hard for some people to swallow. I mean, it seems to me that we circle back to the, the kind of question of the normative here, and, and especially perhaps the, the question of sort of standpoint. And so, you know, one of the things that you're saying is you're explaining the, the discount rate 
here is that, well, it's a problem that hasn't, you know, really affected us that much yet. But the question, it seems to me, is is who gets to be in that us? And, you know, you say in the piece that you know, the standpoint of a farmer standing in a flooded field might be very different to a kind of what looks to me like a very narrow band of sort of professional, largely kind of elite university-based uh, economists, which seems to be the kind of body of technical knowledge that Nordhaus is drawing from. So, you know, I, I guess my question in some ways, you know, it, it just leads on to, I suppose, the question of politics more generally, is how those perspectives come to count. Because one of the things that we've seen, you know, time and time again, you know, every year or every conference is that you have the global south coming and saying, well, you know, we're actually experiencing the consequences of this already. You know, it is something that we are now facing quite clearly. And yet it doesn't seem to feed into this conversation very clearly at all. Is that just because of the centrality of something like GDP to the way in which these things are thought about? Or is it, you know, is it something that that is just very hard to plug in to models and ways of thinking like this? I don't know if it's attributable to, you know, a sort of technical incapacity of the models. I, I doubt that very much. The, you know, the, the, the mathematical sophistication of many of these models is such that it's probably hard to imagine a question we couldn't somehow, quantitatively at least, impute into the model. Um, I'm not sure that encourages me to feel any more confident about their relevance, but it is, I'm sure, possible. Um, but I do think this question of standpoint that you bring up is is extremely important. There is a way in which if we look at, say, DICE as a way to understand the distribution of costs over time, in some ways that prioritizes the big spenders you might think of. In other words, big business. I mean, in some ways, the assessment of costs and the relevance of the real rate of return on capital is very much that holds for a very specific and very narrow and very small actual minority of the world's population. In other words, we're asking, is this worth it to major institutional investors? We're not actually asking if the costs are bearable or seen to be bearable by average people all over the planet, or even in some cases, policymakers. We're asking whether or not this is worth BlackRock's or um, Citigroup's time and money. And the real rate of return right now would suggest it's not. And then that would say, well, then those models are actually in some ways invisibly handing decision-making power over to people who already many of us would mistrust to lead us to the future. So that's, uh, you know, that's, there's a standpoint or perspective dimension in that. The second obvious one is, again, I'm not saying anything new, for lack of a better term, the prioritizing of the present, of course, silences not only those of us to come, our children, our other generations, but also to some extent it prioritizes those present in the places of power at this moment. So like you bring up the question of the G77 who arrives usually at every COP, you know, pointing out very much that a loss and damages fund, which would help them deal with existing problems, is essential. It's almost always quashed. Sometimes they'll put the language in the agreement, but they won't do anything about it. The $100 billion annual fund that's supposed to allow them to deal with future problems has yet to assemble itself 12 years down the line from the original commitment. So we, we have all sorts of instances where it, it's clearer and clearer not only who this model speaks to, but who it's speaking for. And it, I think if we dug into it a little bit more, it, it would reveal itself as a conversation amongst elites about 
the relative impacts on the world that they would very much like to maintain and whether or not massive cost adjustments are necessary to maintain that world. But the idea of change, substantial distributional political change, is actually, it's intentionally silenced. It's not supposed to be part of the conversation. That's the goal of these, the whole process. Right. And I mean, this is the question that seems to arise here is precisely like the question of politics itself, right? Where, and one of the things you say in the piece is that, you know, Nordhaus spends nearly as much time on plans to settle other planets as political theory and politics. And that's pretty concerning (laughs) to me anyway. And obviously, you know, you can wonder about the extent to which this reflects a kind of gradual shift in sort of doxa among, you know, uh, both academic experts, uh, but also kind of political decision makers away from anything that can can look like humanities based at all, including kind of political theory or um, the history of politics itself. And so these things are, are kind of already out of of political decision making, but it seems also that it looks, or you know, it feels very often to me that 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 the ideal vision of politics here is a kind of technocracy of some kind, sort of a technical endeavor where politicians just kind of enact what the formula spits out, or you know, the the space for politics is very very constrained. It, maybe it's also just that you know, you, you take these analyses, any kind of analysis of, of climate change to what seems to me to be its rational conclusions, things end up without very much good news for the <laughs> current global system. Um, so this pattern of interest in these kind of like, you know, kind of quite grandiose visions of the human future with a very kind of constrained model of politics today, that seems to me, at least in the developed world, to, to go significantly beyond someone like Nordhaus. It seems to me to be quite prevalent. Um, I wonder if you recognize the, the the ideology that I'm talking about and whether you know whether there's any kind of you know counter movement towards it within those kind of uh, elite circles and certainly within both the political and kind of academic sphere. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that, that's a really interesting comment. I would agree entirely that this is at least at present not in question except for the fact that I think as perhaps you mentioned there is there is a way in which some of the most some of the institutions i would understand as being amongst the most powerful defenders of the existing order like say the imf or the international monetary fund um are increasingly for lack of a better word panicked about the prospects that climate change poses this of course is an institution that actually does pay attention to the developing world um, so, you know, unlike a lot of us living in the wealthiest part of the world, they can't ignore those problems. And as you mentioned, many of those poorer countries are already long into what we might think of as climate disaster, or cli- at least climate calamities. And the IMF, as I mentioned in the piece, and perhaps other people know it too, published a working paper just a couple of years ago that takes seriously the possibility of human extinction as a product of climate change. The tricky part is that you can say that out loud, and of course it makes us all quake because it's what we probably most of us are worried about and thinking about as well. We can say that out loud, but unless we have, I'm not even sure how to describe it, a realm of political interaction or imagination that can allow us to take that fact as anything other than, you know, a shattering and a complete dislocation of all the logics through which we understand how the world works, then it kind of just ends up being a threat looming on the horizon 
that we worry about, but actually have no capacity to imagine how we might address. And I think that currently that's exactly where we're at. We have a, increasingly the people in power, the elites, understanding the scale of the problem, at least in terms of this you know, potential of human extinction or hundreds of millions of climate migrants um, you know, moving out of the so-called you know, human niche on the planet, which is shrinking as the planet heats up. This is about the science shows very clearly. Where are all those people going to go? They're going to come to Canada. They're going to come to the UK. They're going to go to Germany. They're going to go to the places where it absolutely makes sense that they go. Will they be welcome? We do not have the political capacity to even mention that right now, other than, you know, the great social justice activists who are trying to get us to think that way. So these kinds of things, these are the problems that need to be, I think, placed, you know, front and center. If we can start to imagine not just the possibility of human extinction, but the processes through which we can manage that threat in a way that is just, in a way that is careful, in a way that admits that we actually don't have a great deal of certainty about the prospects ahead. That's the sort of generous politics, I think, that is necessary right now. And I would say, whether it intends to or not, the kinds of approaches to the future that Nordhaus and others have advocated for decades now makes those conversations seem unnecessary or utopian at a moment when I don't think we have any other alternative but to be utopian. Right. I mean, one of the things that is always true about politics is that it returns whether you want it to or not. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the conservative, oh, not just conservative, actually, I mean, it's a, it's a complex question, but the sort of reactions to climate measures kind of bound up in sort of distributional crises and social crises. So I'm thinking here of the kind of response of the Gilets Jaunes in France, which very, you know, ambiguous response, you know, originally to a, to something that looked kind of like an ecological tax, but drew various other things into it. Uh, and I guess that the, this convoy sitting <laughs> in Ottawa right now has has a similar kind of, you know, almost magnetic effect to these kind of social questions being articulated through this this policy measure, this ecological policy measure. Uh, and so it seems to me that this, you know, it, it's not going to be the kind of smooth sailing that might that one might dream about from from some of these um, from some of these texts, from some of these models. So I don't, I don't know if you have sort of thoughts on, on the way in which the, this stuff has already started to play out in, in those instances. And I wonder, you, I mean, obviously, you're closer to this in Canada than than, than we are here. I think that that there are certainly central to these dynamics are the ambiguities that you mentioned, the sort of complicated ways that, that something like a carbon tax or, uh, you know, a gas tax amongst the Gilets jaunes or here, climate isn't actually super central to the convoys right now, but the same communities that have kind of motivated that are also, you know, very concerned about carbon taxes and in some cases that climate change is a hoax and this kind of thing, um, a sort of imaginary politics around which people can rally who feel, I guess, completely disconnected to what we might think of as mainstream political discourse. And I do think that it's the ambiguity that matters. The question is, I think, and I don't have an answer for this, but the, the, the interesting or important question is, is not so much erasing those ambiguities because it, those are, in my opinion, essential dimensions of any kind of substantial progress, for lack of a better term at this moment. There are, you know, all of the things that we're talking about doing will have significant dislocating effects. Um, the question is not so much addressing, I think, the ambiguities as it is perhaps the grounds upon which we build 
a solidarity that allows us to see those ambiguities as both inevitable but also something that we will experience collectively. Um, right now, the, the uncertainties look very unevenly distributed. You know, substantial change will affect me a lot less than it will a lot of the folks in that convoy, arguably, um, or the gilets jaunes in the street. And so it's really, I think, and I don't know if it's a, a question that makes me sound like a sort of old school materialist, but there does seem to be a way in which the really straightforward distributional questions around wealth, income, housing, health, education, dignity, if someone enjoys those so-called privileges, which I think are, it's almost a terrible word because those are things everyone should have. It's not a privilege to have dignity. But if everyone enjoyed those privileges, I have to say, I don't think we would have people parked in Ottawa. If the transitions we were talking about were proposed along with programs that made people feel secure, then I, I think this conversation would be very, very different. Anyone who, who's kind of climate aware reading your piece will have come across this kind of 3.5 degree number and sort of done a double take. But, you know, the thing that, that really kept me awake at night afterwards was, I, I sort of knew this before reading the piece in itself and the way with climate science um, or, or kind of any kind of climate journalism that, that kind of you know things and you manage to put them out of your mind for a while and then they kind of rear up and, and sort of possess you at 3am again. But the thing that kind of kept me up at night was that these models, they're not being used by, you know, uh, you know, the Law and Justice Party in Poland or the kind of, you know, the Australian extractive industries. These are the models that that kind of putatively progressive governments are taking as the, the fundamental basis for their political approach to climate change. And so, you know, alongside the, the kind of you know, scenes of kind of potential apocalypse if if the worst possible people in the world are in power like even the well-intentioned ones are, are, are basing their their politics on on this model which seems you know inadequate or the the solutions that are being built upon it seem completely inadequate or failing to to take these things you know as seriously or in the way that they ought to be taken it feels to me that that ought to be politically explosive um, and that it almost amounts to another kind of form of denialism mm -hmm. I mentioned it in the piece, but I, you know, lots of people have used this phrase that 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 there is a sort of new denialism that I would say is captured very clearly in the leadership of Justin Trudeau here in Canada, where it's this sort of yes, climate change is a big problem and it's a real threat on the future horizons, and we take it very seriously and then do nothing, or literally close to nothing. In some cases, not just nothing, even worse, building pipelines, all of the rest of it. You know, it's a it's a kind of performance of urgency and a, a practical denial. Um, and I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it, it's also true, as you say, that because any kind of regulatory response to climate change, either in the form of carbon taxes or cap and trade or emissions trading systems at a regional level, any of this stuff, this is seen as like cutting edge progressivism. And it's proven, at least thus far, to be actually completely meaningless in terms of affecting the trajectory of the climate. And so that is a terrifying thought because these are the people who we're putting all our hope in, or these are the institutions that we're putting all our hope in, and they could very easily be erased by law and justice parties or Republican parties or conservative parties here in Canada. It doesn't really matter. We could go on and on about the folks who would oppose this stuff. So I think you're right. And in some ways it makes me think, 
and I don't really have an answer to this at all, but I do think these are discussions that are happening all over the world in climate justice, you know, conversations, is where the site of the appropriate politics lies, you know, at least right now. Is it at the level of the state? I don't know if that's clear. I, I think a lot of people are starting to think that the kinds of action that will fundamentally transform our relationship with the earth and climate change will have to be motivated and organized at scales other than the formal institutions of the state. Because if the best we can hope for is a $45 climate tax that actually exists almost nowhere on the planet, then perhaps we are looking in the wrong direction right now for the kinds of change that we need to happen. Right. And, you know, I guess in some sense this touches on, you know, we've just had COP26 in Glasgow, which Jenny Turner wrote about for the LRB. And of course, we've also lived through, you know, two years of a global pandemic. And in a sense, it sort of touches on that question of of what the state can do. You know, I suppose there's also a, a fossil fuel dimension to the crisis in Ukraine at the moment. So, so obviously, at the at the level of the state, you know, that these questions about what states can do to change things, or at least, you know, theoretically have the capacity to do to change things, you know, these have been in the spotlight in some way over the past year, year and a half, and yet, you know, it does. It, it feels like there are these various, you know, parts of kind of social life where the state is very, very happy to kind of act and regulate or, or you know, deal with. A crisis like a pandemic, which is immediately kind of uh, graspable in, uh, you know, in front of our eyes, you know, has an immediate impact on life, i.e. it's not about, you know, a generation down the line, it's about us here and now. I just wonder, because obviously, you know, you wrote with Joel Wainwright that, you know, an excellent book, kind of Climate Leviathan, and I was struck by your use of Goya, uh, Goya's Colosso early in the piece. And of course, for any, anyone with a kind of political theory education that that kind of vast towering figure over the landscape of course puts you in mind of of leviathan hobbes's leviathan and that the, the astonishing frontispiece there which is kind of you know absolute state power at its most terrifying and sublime is it the case that these recent events give us cause to think about the state's potentials in a new way i you know i have to say i oscillate on this myself i I kind of I think wow we've kind of managed to take enormous sort of economic action to deal with the pandemic uh, you know at least in some parts of the world and so that suggests there's a potential there and yet it doesn't seem to translate. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it does not. And I mean, it, it, the simplistic argument and the one that one hears all the time, of course, is that it's a question of urgency. And and for most of the, especially the wealthy world, climate change, I guess, still doesn't feel like an urgent problem. I am not sure that explains the radical difference in the kinds of scale and scope of action that you're describing. I don't know if, it, if it's the question of urgency uh, or if it's a question of institutional capacity, um, you know, so that even if people feel like the problem desperately needs to be dealt with, we don't know how to do it. Um, whereas, you know, many places have a public health system in place, at least it's a very obvious kind of mechanism through which to play things out. We don't even know how to do that at the climate level. Who do you give that regulatory power to? How do they exercise it? You know, all of these other things. I'm not sure if that explains the difference either. But I do think that uh, the state's capacity is both for much of the climate justice movement, let's say, is both its greatest hope, the, the greatest hope, you know, it is the one, it's the in, in the Keynesian frame that we still, I think, adhere to very closely. It is the one institution who has the social interest in mind, um, at least in theory. 
But at all, but I think that the the history of of our inaction on a problem that we've known is urgent for a very long time, also I think has really diluted the faith of that same climate justice community in the state's capacity to actually respond. What the outcome of that will be, I I don't have any better idea than you. I do think though that there is something about Goya Goya's image. And the way it recalls, in some cases, that kind of blind Leviathan, a Leviathan turned away, you know, which is very different than the famous frontispiece. And a, and a, Levi- a Leviathan that is not, if you look closely at that frontispiece, composed of many, many of the many, you know, it's, it's its own being and it operates according to its own rules. And we don't even know if it's protecting us or about to attack. We have no idea. Just to add something I think you might find interesting, unsurprisingly, uh, for you, the piece was quite a bit longer when I sent it to the LRB, as you can imagine. I'm sure many of us have experienced this. And there was quite a long conclusion uh, that brought it back to another painting or drawing by Goya from uh, several years later called The Giant Seated, or at least that's the title we've given it. And the giant is a hulking figure, much like the one in El Coloso. And he's sitting with his back to us on a hill, probably like the hills that El Coloso looms over in the, in the original painting. And he's looking back over his shoulder with a look of half disgust, half resignation. And as if he's looking past the viewer at something behind us. And I thought, and that's why I put it in the original piece, that this was in many ways what we might argue Nordhaus's Colossus has become. And I would be curious to hear how he thought about what had become of his Colossus and what exactly it's looking at over our shoulder. And it's a very un-Leviathan figure. It's a, it's, a, it's a Leviathan beaten, but I don't know by what. Jeff, thank you. That's been a really astonishing and useful conversation. Thanks a lot, James. You can read Jeff's piece in the latest issue of the LRB on our website, Our next issue will be out tomorrow, but you can read two pieces from it already. Paul Theroux's diary about VS Naipaul and Lala Khalili's review of retired US Army General Stanley McChrystal's Business Self-Help Guide. They're online now.